0: Welcome to the Companion Podcast. I'm your host, Lawrence Cow, and this is my co-host, Rebecca Davis. Hello, Rebecca. Hello, Lawrence. (laughs) So you joined us August Mm -hmm. 22nd. And by the time November 20th rolls around, that's less than three months, Mm -hmm. you're working with, producing, and directing one of your heroes in Christopher Judge, Teal, Christopher Judge, Kratos, Christopher Judge. <laughs> <laughs> Can you describe what it was like?
1: Um, the first word that comes to mind is surreal. Uh, I've I go to conventions all the time, so I've I've been able to meet these people before, but it was a next level to actually be working with one of them. Um, and then just to have such a positive experience too, to be able to meet him in person, and he was so kind, gave me a big bear hug when I walked in when he walked into uh, to the set, and it was just a really great time. And what we ended up filming that day, just being able to have all these people in the room together to have this really important conversation. It was just phenomenal i am super proud of what we accomplished and what we created for everyone that you get to listen to
0: now so rebecca i have one quick question for you on behalf of our members on behalf of the fans which is how do you switch from being a fan to all of a sudden needing to work with and direct with one of your heroes like christopher judge
1: the the big the most important thing that i feel like in that situation is you have to remain professional, obviously, but I don't think that anyone wants or expects you to completely lose the fact that you you appreciate these people and you're a fan of these people. So it is that balance, striking that balance between being a fan, but also being a professional. Um, it does come with a lot of imposter syndrome. It makes me feel very unqualified when I'm around people whose who's body of work I know very well. And um, it's a little intimidating, but... Ultimately, it feels like you settle in pretty quickly.
0: Well, from my perspective, being able to see the production process, the chaos, how you got everyone into the room together, I think we can all be very proud of what we accomplished. And it's a really incredible event.
2: Thank you. Been a stranger on the outside looking in. You don't see me, when you see me, but look again. Been a fixer, been a breaker, been a hired hand. Yet you ask me who I am. You ask me who I am. You ask me where I've been, and if I am, a ask me who I am Who I am? Who I am? the storm they turn who away I who, I am, who I am? Who I am? Just a face without a who name I am, Who I am? Who I am? And I will try I to satisfy, satisfy, it satisfy it and who explain I am, Who I am? And then ask me Who I am? Who I am? Who I am? Of the am. Stone, Turn away way you have Who I am Just a face without a name Yeah I And I would try to satisfy it And explain Who I am When
3: Who I am Hi and welcome. My name is Christina Ariel and today I am joined by a panel of incredible creators, actors, directors, producers, to discuss some of the issues that affect us as people of color. We hope that you will enjoy this conversation. It is an opportunity for us to share our stories and our experiences in an effort to make them more universal, in an effort to humanize a people that have been repeatedly dehumanized. And sometimes the only way that you can see a people is to hear their stories and find your empathy. And that's what we hope to do today. And we hope that you come in with an open mind and open hearts. And with that, I'm gonna go to my left and we're gonna go around and introduce our lovely panel today. Hello. Hi, Christina.
4: I'm Joelle Monique. I'm an executive producer at iHeart Podcasts. My pronouns are she, her.
5: Hi, my name's David Bianchi. I'm an actor, independent filmmaker. I'm um, also globally known as a spoken word poet. Uh, created an art genre called Spinema, spinning cinema through spoken word, and I do a lot of work in socially conscious art and NFTs and blockchain. Cool.
6: Hi, I'm uh, I'm James Powell, better known as JP. Hi, mom. Uh, <laughs> I'm a content creator and producer. Uh, I'm in my first year uh, of production uh, in esports. Hey,
7: gang. Uh, my name is MJ Slide. My pronouns are they/them. I primarily work as a first assistant director on uh, set, so safety, set, scheduling, and logistics. But I also uh, write and produce, and occasionally act. So Keeping keepin all over the place. <laughs> <laughs> all right,
8: I'm Christopher Judge, uh, actor, writer, producer. Um, you might know me from Stargate SG-1. Um, Black Panther, War for Wakanda, or this other deal. God of War. Um, (laughs) Thanks, really nice to be here.
3: Well, thank you all so much for joining me. I'm excited to start talking with you. We've already had a little bit of conversation and getting to know one another time, (laughs) but we're gonna bring that conversation that we've had in private to the public in hopes that, again, we start to form humanity by humanizing each other. So, one of the things that we are gonna start with is sci-fi and diversity in sci-fi, inclusion in sci-fi, equity in sci-fi, equity across the board because that's one of the things that gets lost in the conversation, which is exceptionally important. Now, we're seeing a lot of what people like to call, oh, we're gonna start heavy, sorry. (laughs) (laughs) The issue of quote-unquote forced diversity versus earning your place in a room. And there's this idea that when a person of color is added, it is only to assuage the quote-unquote woke mobs. We are gonna discuss the issues of quote-unquote forced diversity versus earning your place in the room. We all know that we've had to fight for our space in many a room, in many a conversations, just to even be able to pull up a seat at the table. How does it feel to you as an artist to have to prove over and over that you deserve your space in the room, even with the cumulative years of experience on this couch? How does it feel to have your work diminished in that way? And feel free, is there anyone that would like to start with that?
6: Um, I could start. Mm -hmm. Um, It's very interesting, as a uh, a content creator I work in cosplay primarily and um, it can be quite a toxic place. Um, it's a place where you constantly have to uh, fight for your keep to prove that you know, your version of these characters is, is something that is to be accepted. Uh, and it doesn't really matter what kind of character you choose. Of course, we see it a lot more when you choose a traditionally white character. One of the main characters I do is Kylo Ren. Um, I've been lucky enough uh, uh, to work with uh, a Star Wars celebration and kind of do a couple of different things revolving around that character because I was a, a POC cosplayer doing Kylo Ren. The amount of backlash you usually receive from that is heavy. Um, so it's unfortunately, it's always felt normalized, right? But that's also the, the state of what we live in. when. When, when your world is built around um, the legacy of whiteness, everything becomes you fighting for a spot at the table um, or fighting for a chance to be recognized or fighting for a chance to, to be viewed in the exact same light as this other person who's chosen the exact same character. Um, in more recent years, I've kind of taken a direct approach because what else do you do? Um, if, if something's broken and no one else is around you, it's gonna fix it, you have to. So. I mean, I I would say that part of it is me, you know, trolling folks that are there to troll me, but um, more importantly, if some little kid sees that and they want to do it, I've done my job, you know?
3: And in that situation with cosplay, especially dealing with the, oh, you're an inward this or this, Mm -hmm. it's being that a lot of people find the most far-fetched idea in sci-fi that someone could be a person of color not a magical dragon that flies right so how yeah. do you decide when to protect your peace and when to engage i'll
6: be honest with you um i've only really learned i i don't honestly, i don't even think i can't even say i really learned um uh i'm a philadelphian so i'm very much like about that action you know mm-hmm. like so like i i don't for a while, I was just, it, whether it ate me up or not, I was about it. I was in the comments, I was on, you know, during the during, uh, pandemic and during shutdown, you know, content kind of slowed. I was dealing with a lot of folks' opinions and I I donated uh, the, the following that I had and like the, the, the amount of marketability I had to the movement. So I would post things and I would get a lot of, a lot of negative feedback, a lot of negative feedback. After a while, it's just like, okay, this is what I'm doing, you know? Um, and not to make it sound any kind of way or any more noble than it is, but like, you know, um, any fighter, any warrior, any soldier, they strap up, you know? So, like, you put your, you know, you, you put your gear on, you go to work. So I would wake up every day, uh, you know, have some coffee, write down some notes for, you know, what I might have re- remembered from a conversation that was continued the night before, something like that. And i just get in there and get ready because everybody's gonna have something to say, but what they don't expect you to have is a response. Mm-hmm. And especially one that is uh, valid and, and,
5: and weighted in, in truth.
9: Mm-hmm.
5: I think that there's also something to be said about uh, sort of pivoting back to the notion of science fiction, which as a genre was popularized early 1950s around the boom of nuclear energy, space travel, astrophysicism, and these sorts of things. And so the idea of what would be like dystopian worlds and dystopian environments that would be led by the notions of scientists. So looking at that institution of science as it's known in pop culture, it typically is not attributed to people of color, Mm -hmm. especially as we look at it in the pop culture lexicon. And so we as a people are continually, you know, wading in the water. Mm -hmm. We are wading in the water. We are the salmon going against the current a current that is perpetually against us. And so we have had to strengthen ourselves and fortify our mind, body, and spirit to be able to work in a system that essentially is like a casino. We're always betting against the house, and the house most time wins. Mm -hmm. And if you start winning, they're going to figure out a way to call the pit boss to remind you that you're winning too Mm -hmm. much. And so these are things that we, just from a social and entertainment structure, have had to fight against.
8: Well, you know, it's it's interesting. um, In the, in sci-fi especially, it's never controversial when the alien is black. And at one time, at one time in the 90s, the only black people on television, mm-hmm. other outside of sitcoms, were there were three of us who who played aliens in sci-fi shows.
5: Mm-hmm.
8: Never caused any controversy because if they had super strength, super healing, super whatever, they never said this out loud. But super intellect, it was okay because they're aliens. Some of the biggest pushback in sci-fi ever was Cisco, Mm. When he was the black commander, captain, on Star Trek. Now that's when people really came out because to accept that a black man would be leading in the future was hard for a lot of folk Mm. to digest. Um, and I find that it interesting that it's still so pervasive. We watch House of the Dragon. We can th- the suspend disbelief for dragons, but not that one of the houses may be black. <laughs>
4: I really hated that Valyrians were like, old world and have money and we're black. They were like, you can't
9: possibly battle this scenario. Very
4: disturbing to us. Next they'll be taking our steel. <laughs> <laughs>
9: um,
4: to answer your original question, how does it make you feel to have to constantly fight for a space you've already earned? I mean, exhausting. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I mean, <laughs> Like, I was not born with the fight of a... Like, I'm not a fighter, period. Like, I, I'm i a maybe a diplomat, but definitely more of a person who's like, where can we find common ground to move forward? Because I'm, I don't have swing. I can't do it. Um, but lately, I've had to find that fight in me mm-hmm. because the only other option is to constantly be spoken down to, particularly... I'm under contract, so I'm not gonna say names. But I work for a company, not Mm iHeart, hey guys. Um, And I've done a lot of work for them for a while now. They see my numbers, they know who I am, they know what I'm capable of. And yet any time a large opportunity comes around, something I've put myself out there for, it's suddenly, oh well, agents, we're not sure. We just don't know what's gonna happen.
9: Mm.
4: But coworkers, people of similar stature, four or five opportunities in one sitting, it's mind-boggling. And sitting at that, you know, precipice, you're like, do I come in here and call y'all out your names? Which is what my brother wants me to do. Like, mm-hmm. go in there and lay it on the table. Like, this is racist. Do I hurt their pockets I have the capability to do do I or do I try to find that common ground I'm not I'm still debating it I don't know the best way forward because I want to have a long career but I also know that my main purpose for being here is to keep a door open so people coming up behind me don't have to go through the same struggle Mm. and if I don't face it head on I'm not doing (laughs) that for them
2: Mm.
4: it is constantly a struggle to find a balance of how do I be a team player and respect myself at the same time.
3: And I don't have all the answers yet. We find ourselves in this place where we aren't speaking for ourselves. Anything that we say is speaking for our people as a whole. Mm -hmm. We don't have the luxury of just existing, showing up. Everything we do in a lot of cases is a movement that we didn't sign up for Mm. to be the first black anything, to be that representation, to be the first Afro-Latina person to exist and do a certain thing, we don't have the luxury of then coming into a room as the only person in it and expressing how we feel or saying, hey, this is what I need to be treated as a human. This is what I need to just feel comfortable, to feel safe. And we go into so many rooms without the luxury of safety. But having to fight and we're fighting with so few defenses because there's no one to be in that room That looks like you to have your back and say actually, you know what? She's actually right. This is what we need. This is what we need to move forward. And how do you find yourselves? With you MJ on the production side. How do you find yourself? Girding your loins to go in for that fight. Um,
7: Oh I mean, I've been doing, I've been first aiding for over a decade now. And unfortunately, the first half of that decade was, I just, I, substance abuse. That was the way that I dealt with it. Where it was just like, this is the thing, you pull your, you, you pull your bootstraps up every morning, you put your armor on, you go do the thing because you gotta, like, you gotta swing. And like, and, but like, got a lot of that out of my system now. Very grateful for it. But I think now it's, why are you worried about getting calls from calls back from people who don't respect you anyway? Mm. And that's the thing that I tell a lot of, like I tell a lot of people specifically people like to shit on production department. Um, we are the department that you don't see on screen, but if you do, it's a problem. Um, and, but we run, we run the show. And so we do, we do a lot of, we do a lot of the, the grunt work and, um, I think the hardest bit about it is you it's not like there is a certain level you have to deal with the performance aspect of it because so much of our industry is performative it is it is smoke and mirrors the amount of sets that I've been on that had pretended to be bigger than they actually are to the detriment of the people that are on the set is mind-numbing and they'll prioritize certain humans and deprioritize all of the others and i think for me i'll just look at those pas and be like you didn't want to get called back from those people anyways spent the first half of my career wondering why i wasn't getting called back and it was like well, was i just showing my ass too much and it's like yeah probably um but also you don't want to get called back from them either and if showing your ass basically means standing up for yourself and advocating for the humanity of not just the people of color on set, but everyone because the like set life is pretty inhumane sometimes. Um, yeah, you you get used to not getting called back. and I think the that's when you create your own. Like mm-hmm. you you like, look, for me it's <laughs> I take I take I take certain gigs to basically scout now. I'm like you and you and you, you're excellent. We're like, this, these were shenanigans. But the next thing we're gonna go, let's like, we're all parachuting out of this. And then we're gonna go do a thing together. And obviously that is not sustainable long-term. It's not a plan that doesn't fix the thing because you can't just like wall out the toxicity at a certain point you have to stand your ground and address that. But like, I think it's an 100% fair to ch- choose to bring people on your set that do make you feel safe and and efficient and and those sorts of things but yeah I think the some days I mean I quote unquote choose violence where it's just kind of like we're not we are not doing this we are not doing and it's one of the reasons I picked first assistant directing because I'm so tired of not having somebody to advocate for me and so I worked my way up and it took, took about three and a half years till I was at a point where I could sort of run the, like start to run the thing. But you do, you take a lot of it on the nose. There's a lot of days where I come back and I'll sit at my desk and I'll just start crying because like, you're just, you're everyone's parent. Mm. <laughs> but you're also in charge of making sure everyone is safe. It's, it's very weird. I don't, I don't regret it, but it's not sustainable. And we got to figure out, like, one of the things about our industry that we have to figure out across the board is how do we make this sustainable while centering the, like, if the human experience is supposed to be about enriching people, like, if storytelling is supposed to be about enriching people's lives, how do we do that when we are not prioritizing prioritizing the humans who are telling those stories? Mm-hmm.
8: I've, I've always said that making entertainment should be, Entertaining.
9: Hmm.
8: And you know, I, I I first of all, let me say you might know I'm <laughs> a high <your> ass.
9: <laughs>
8: um first A D is the toughest job on a film mm-hmm. set. You hear everybody's shit above and below you. Yep. but aren't allowed to give any back you always have to be the calm in the storm and it's a thankless job Mm. because you only get any sort of notoriety when something goes bad yep and uh you know i've been number one number one on the call sheet in a few movies but never for this extended amount of time. This is my eighth year playing this character, number one on the call sheet, which now has to be negotiated. Um, (laughs) And I kind of got, you know, doing Stargate, shit flows downhill. If number one was in a bad mood, everybody's in a bad mood. Mm -hmm. Number one is happy, everybody's happy. If number one's relationship, something's messing up, everybody's relationship is messing up. So I've taken it very seriously about setting the tone on a set. First of all, I'm gonna know everybody's name.
9: Mm
8: -hmm. I'm gonna know their kids' names. I'm gonna know their wives' or husbands' names. And I'm gonna make sure if you go somewhere with a problem and you're not heard, come to me, mm. I'll fight your battle. To me, my responsibility is to always punch up,
9: mm.
8: to always make, and, and thank God my first experience with this, I was had a boss who believed the same thing, that everyone's contribution is equally valuable and we're gonna make sure you know that.
4: That's a beautiful thing. And
8: that's how every day in the volume is. The smallest gripe is heard because it's not a small gripe. It's Mm -hmm. something that's bothering someone Mm. and that is to be taken seriously. And I did away with the hierarchy. Mm. If I can make fun of you, you have an open door to make fun of me and It's on me if I can't take it, Mm. right? And it's so important that everyone feels valued, and heard, and appreciated. And I I think a a, a lot of what we experience could be alleviated if there was just some more (laughs) understanding from the
7: top. Yes. And it's it's one of those things that, that I think the tension that you were describing, where you're like, I want to stick around to keep the door open, because we've all got that person mm-hmm. who looked at us and was like, this is the shit. I'm keeping this door open, hell or high water. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You coming mm-hmm. up with me? And and that's and that's one of the reasons we stay. It's like. Yeah, first A.D. is a thankless task, but the amount of times that I get to look at a person and be like, hey, you're really good at this, yeah. I'm keeping this door open for you. Like, if I can get people promoted, if I can get them the credits, if I can fight for a better wage for them, <laughs> looking at because, oh god, we won't we won't even, we can talk about a wage gap. Yeah. Um. Yeah. And just be like, that is the, because nobody else is like, nobody's, nobody knows what a first A.D. is. Unless mm-hmm. you're on set, it's like no, like nobody has any idea. But the the thing is, like, it's the the world is where I find myself in that space. It's the microcosm of the world that, like, or example of the larger world where I do have some authority to be able to be like, that shit's not
4: gonna fly. We are not doing that here. The, um, yeah. To your point, and I think something that we're sort of talking around almost is like this idea of allyship Mm -hmm. and what does that actually look Mm -hmm. like? And I think particularly when you're black and either coming into a position of power or someone who's held a position of power for a while, you have to play double duty as both, I'm a black person in this space and I have to frequently negotiate with my white bosses and, and make sure they understand how things are working down here so they can hopefully make better decisions. But then I also have to sit in positions of allyship for like, my trans brothers and sisters for you know the other black kids coming up behind me it's like we were talking about it before camera started rolling but like there's legitimate effort in having to do everything that is your job in order to make your job still work and it's frustrating but also to your point mj it's like one of the most validating aspects of my job i wouldn't like get rid of it now even though i'm like why do I have to do this? Why do yeah. I have to constantly come and explain to you why this shouldn't be, or why you know we have to have actual like trans human beings telling their stories? We cannot hire cis people who think they have an understanding. Like, it's it's irritating, but it's also part of the job now. And so I think for me, trying to work all of that in, the the best thing I've done is say my weekends are my weekends. Mm. I put very hard mm. blocks around time off to say, you can't contact me even in this time. I'm not going to read your email if you need to send it because that's how you work. That's fine. I'm not opening it mm-hmm. until I start my day on Monday because I can't reset and do all the things I have to do through the week. If I don't take that time to rest, it's absolutely essential. Yeah. It's the reset. I think it's like,
7: I mean, you, you mentioned, uh, like it was, I think it was before camera was rolling into the the idea of intergenerational trauma and the amount of stuff like the, we have to take special care of our nervous systems because if the amount of shit like if we do not have that rest if it is not intentional like there's no
3: fuel there's nothing to run on there's no peace and i think to speak for myself and possibly for some of you we don't have the luxury of just going to work and doing our jobs we go into work we show up but especially in situations where you find yourself being the only person of color on a set, you also find yourself being an encyclopedia or Google. Uh. And you're put into situations where you have to answer questions that have absolutely nothing to do with your job. With you as a person, you have to answer, okay, I once heard this stereotype, (laughs) and I want you to tell me why you guys do this and being put into those situations where you become it goes back to becoming a spokesperson or an advocate and being put into situations and that in itself is extremely dehumanizing because there are too many resources available mm. for me to come into a situation where I'm already coming in and I'm going to I'm going to present before I open my mouth mm. you're going to form an opinion of me before I open my mouth and then you're going to act surprised when the voice that comes out of my voice box is not what your assumption of my identity is. Mm. And it's exhausting to constantly play that game. It's exhausting to constantly find yourself in a situation where not only are you on your guard, you are expected to answer questions that sometimes are just out of your wheelhouse. Mm -hmm. Like, I'm sorry, but being black does not necessarily mean you know every single solitary type of black experience. All of us sitting here on these couches have very different upbringings, parents, families, that affect the people that we are and that we grow up to be. But we are still fighting against the idea because all of our stories are filtered through this lens of executives who are okay, that story works because I uh, see something, a little bit of something I recognize, but we're looking for coming-of-age black women's stories and I gotta go back to Brooklyn to find a story where I actually, like... Felt resonates. Yeah, it's like that resonates. <laughs> yes. And that's not to say, like, a lot of people say, no, we can't fund this project, no, we can't get this behind this project because who's going to relate to this story? I I didn't relate to Beta in My Girl. I didn't live in a mortuary. (laughs) My best friend didn't get stung by bees. (laughs) there's,
9: There's levels to
3: this, but we keep finding ourselves fighting to tell the stories that we want to tell. But then we also, back to Game of Thrones, back to The Little Mermaid. We have this layer of thinly veiled racism, and... Even when these shows are striving to add more representation, again, we are met with the, you're only here because we had X space that needed to be healed. You're not here because, and you have to work. And I'm gonna speak to this actually with you. Hmm. I was on, I was creeping on your Twitter. (laughs) And there was a situation when you got the role, was it 2016 when you got the role, Kratos?
8: 2014.
3: So there was a guy who had gone onto your post, and he did the thing that people do when they think that they know better about your job.
8: (laughs) (laughs) Let's just say it, there's a nigga playing a Greek.
9: And
3: it it was a guy, he was, you could see all of his comments and all of these things that he's saying, and like, oh, this role shouldn't have gone to you. But there was something else that I saw, and it was an apology. Mm. This same guy came back to that same post where you announced it, maybe four years after, to apologize to you, Mm. and to say he couldn't see anyone else in the role. How do you all feel about the fact that we have to go, it's expected for us to go through the harassment just for getting a job? That it is expected for us to, there's no preparation for it. Companies are not necessarily prepared. They don't have diversity and inclusion heads. They don't have teams in place to monitor social media, to prepare you going into things. Cosplay, no one's gonna set you up for success. You're basically taking care of yourself until you have someone Mm -hmm. that's there. You fortunately have your own company, but getting into that NFT space, you had to create your own lane to get there. And even if they are there, let's be honest, there's a dollar at the end
4: of the day that they are, adjusting to, and if it's mm-hmm. not in the company's best interest,
3: screw it, they're not interested. I'm not saving you, I'm saving the bottom line.
9: Mm-hmm.
3: And how does it feel to know that the egg? like I understand it's businesses, but to know the eggshells that you have to walk on because you know it's coming. You know being in this field, like whether it's in front of or behind, you are going to walk into a situation where someone calls you out of your name, someone talks down to you, someone does these things, but you are just expected to weather that storm and weather it gracefully.
8: Mm -hmm. Well, uh, society prepared me for it. Mm -hmm. Uh, I knew when I got the gig, what was coming with it. I had a buffer. His name was T.C. Carson tc carson was kratos before i was so the studio was really able to say in case you didn't know kratos is already a black man which was easy for them it almost diminished what i had accomplished
2: Mm -hmm.
8: uh, by getting this role because once again uh that Now, the role required performance capture. There was screen tests and, um, uh, uh, not compatibility, um, uh, chemistry, thank you. Mm -hmm. A chemistry test. Every other Kratos there was white. So, but once again, I knew I'm gonna get this.
9: (laughs) (laughs) Um,
8: And having had quite a few 10 year olds, uh, Sonny, at the time, I think had just turned 10. I just treated him like one of my kids, and I could see the executives sit back, because I don't know how the other chemistry tests went, but apparently this one went far better. Caritos mm. I mean, had
4: a and big black dad in you... <laughs> <laughs>
8: Um So I knew going in, And to speak specifically to you, uh, yes, he did. This, This particular person really did four years later write back and apologize and say I was wrong. And I responded, I said, brother, we're all afraid of change. I'm afraid of change. I'm a creature of habit. Once I'm forced to go out of my comfort zone, I am uncomfortable and afraid. What makes it different? Because that's pretty much every day of my life. Mm. You know, so for a lot of Caucasian people, the ability to see something new, to get out of their comfort zones, is something foreign to them because they don't live every day on edge. They don't live every day with your survival instinct at 10. Mm-hmm. You know, so I, actually applauded this cat for thank you for your effort Mm
9: -hmm.
8: because that was an effort to even give it a chance Mm -hmm. um so uh, for for me specifically it it comes with the territory you know i i know that it's going to be met with resistance i know the next thing i do because i know what it is it's going to be met with resistance Mm -hmm. And so I go into it girding my loins. Mm. Like, you just got to weather it. You got, and maybe that'll make it easier for somebody else.
5: Mm-hmm. This, there's, there's something very powerful with hearing you describe that story. And it, it leans into what I mentioned earlier, which is a degree of scrutiny mm-hmm. that we are held to as a result of these public roles that we have, The mm-hmm. I think, the blessing and the opportunity to play. I oftentimes have to think about the macrocosm as opposed to the microcosm, mm-hmm. because the microcosm is my ego, right? That's mm-hmm. my wills, my wants, my desires to think, I, the things I think I need de- my desire to tell you what's up with yourself, mm-hmm. right? Whereas the 10,000 foot elevation is, whew, David, your job is to be a good ancestor.
8: Mm-hmm.
5: That's my job. That's the best that I can do sometimes. Mm-hmm. I'm not facing German shepherds and fire hoses, but I'm facing a different kind of scrutiny and a different kind of 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 uh, of magnifying glass that is looking for me to be too niggerish, mm-hmm. or me mm-hmm. to be too hood, or mm-hmm. me to not be smart enough, or maybe not know my lines and not hit my marks. When it comes to being a person of color, there's no such thing as on time. Either mm-hmm. you're early or you're late.
8: Right. <laughs> you know, no, what I mean?
5: that's right. You know and, and I think that I have to step into that, to your point about this knowing, mm. this knowing mm. that I, I I wanna behave to the best of my ability because I wanna be able to create inclusion for generations that are coming. Mm. Mm. One of the most important moments of my young, young life. Now, when I was in second grade, I was going to a public school in upstate New York and I'll never forget it. I, uh, I cut pictures of the girls in the bra ads out of the magazines because that's what I like to do. I was drawn to that, and I pinned them on the wall and the girls teased me and I got sent to the principal's office and there was the carbon copy of my referral. And the principal had these big, meaty fingers and it was a big silver desk and you could smoke cigars at the time. And this was upstate Rochester, New York. And he took a black metal box out from under his desk and it had a silver latch on it. He says, He took the carbon copy. He says, You see this, son? I'm going to put this here in my nigger box. And I don't want you coming back here because I don't want my nigger box getting full.
3: Jesus Christ.
5: And that's what I learned in second grade, but I didn't know what that meant really. Mm -hmm. I then moved to Mexico City for five years where I didn't hear those words. Mm -hmm. And I had a pivotal moment in fourth grade where I was cast in my first leading role in a play as a notoriously Caucasian character Mm -hmm. in a play called Peter Pan, I was cast as Captain Hook. Mm -hmm. Yay! What's beautiful about that is what i had learned in that moment before moving to mexico and then when i moved to mexico i had the bravery of a caucasian teacher who said i see charisma and charm in a skinny brown boy and i can paint a mustache on his face and give him a metal hook mm. and he could say armati and tick tock tick tock uh, tick tock mm. if it weren't for that degree of inclusion maybe i wouldn't be doing what i'm doing mm. today and so I'm lucky to be alive, and, and, and I think all of us are lucky For to be sure. alive mm-hmm. in many ways. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so inclusion, I think, is something that you are so blessed with the opportunity to hire people and us pushing to the notion of, we never know who we're touching and how we're touching. Mm-hmm. And that, 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 that drama teacher mm-hmm. back in fourth grade decided to make me Captain Hook mm-hmm. is probably a big part of why I'm here right now. Mm-hmm. And I mm-hmm. get to be a good ancestor as a result of that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
4: Go ahead. I just think there's a level of bugging the system that I feel is happening right now that I'm excited to like partake in, mm. even if it's, even if it's, it's still nerve-wracking. So I, I tell a lot of my girls, I'm like, listen, it's, I don't want you to think that I don't still experience, um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for, y'all? When you get to work, you feel like you don't belong. Imposter syndrome. Imposter syndrome. That yeah, thing. Yeah. Imposter syndrome. <laughs> That's just yeah, we all. We oh, right, no. all.
6: Yes. 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 <laughs> yes, yes. We to post about that before we sat down.
5: <laughs> so someone's going to make a T-shirt like it. It's
4: still there. It's present all all the time. To your point, I got lucky. So I mm. struggled for like nearly a decade to get a paid gig in podcasting. Mm. I was podcasting like four to five times a night with companies, like being flown out to places to do it, but I couldn't get a dollar. It was so aggravating and frustrating. Mm. It led me to be unhoused for about a year and a half. Mm. Uh, And it was really scary. It was scary. Then I had a friend who brought me in to iHeart to work as a researcher on her show. And that's why I met Daddy Jack, who is the only white man I trust.
9: Which I tell him he, <laughs> he is
4: brilliant and funny and not at all getting in the people he hires way. He like lets us move as we need to, which was important for me because while I was un- unhoused, I learned I have ADD. Mm-hmm. So it was like, oh, this is why I can't hold a steady job. It's not a me problem necessarily. It's a you have your brain is not functioning in a way that society has deemed as necessary in order to be successful. And so I had Mm -hmm. to address that and I was able to address it because he also has ADD Mm -hmm. and he was like, it's cool. I can provide you this space. You want to wake up at three in the morning and clock out at 2 PM. I don't care. Do what works for you. Just get the work done. Mm -hmm. And that freedom to just become fully as myself, right? In every single way to be fat, to be queer, to be black, to have ADD, to show up fully as myself gave me an opportunity to create podcasts that were successful and then to create a program that has, you know, we get to bring in so many incredible people who like me have been at this work for a long time and for whatever reason have not been able to find that limelight that they know they're qualified for. And I think it's the most insidious aspect of white supremacy that we still face as a group is this idea of needing to prove yourself, Mm -hmm. needing to sound the right way or look the right way, but also like, well, what work have you done lately? Was it good Mm -hmm. three months ago? I don't care what you were going through. I don't care anything about your humanity.
7: I think the, it's like this concept, uh, it's manufactured scarcity. There it is. And it's this idea that there's not not enough. And it's like, we have never lived in a world where we have been so knee deep in resources Mm -hmm. and so knee deep in technology that is allowed to democratize storytelling the way that it is but there can only be one of us mm-hmm. doing the thing that is excellent mm-hmm. up at the top. And it's like, I call bullshit. Mm. And I'm gonna call bullshit till my dying day because the, like the, it's, this, it's this vacuum. I mean, most of it's late stage capitalism. Um, <laughs> well, like, let's not kid ourselves. And it's, all, it's also one of these things, but well, we're watching it collapse on itself. Mm-hmm. We're watching it eat itself. And I think it's one of these like I'm sitting here right now being like I'm collecting my D and D party because like the goal is to get get your folks because it's like
4: it's going to collapse.
7: It's going, it's going to eat itself. There's it's going gonna to be
4: our turn next yeah. so to your point. Like I feel exactly the same way. Like building community, finding these kids. Sometimes I call them kids, but they're not all children. <laughs> some of them are in their forties with families. So who are like, I just feel passionately about doing this thing. Great. Get in here. Like mm-hmm. you're a good person. You have good vibes. You have an interesting story. You're intelligent. We can work with whatever else comes after that. I can work with that. Mm -hmm. I can help you achieve whatever your goal, literally whatever. My bottom line is never gonna be a dollar because it could burn up tomorrow. It might not not mean anything tomorrow. Well, Mm -hmm.
7: because it really like, it doesn't really mean anything. I think that's the other thing, where I'm looking around being like, credit scores didn't exist until the, the, the 90s. Mm-hmm. Like, it's it's all of these, it's all of these like hand-waving nonsense things that we've bought into. And they have real, the, the wild thing is they have real-world consequences. Yes. But it's this is where imagination plays in, and this is where science fiction comes in, because it's like, to a certain extent, to certain humans, it would be like, it feels like science fiction to live in a world with no credit scores. Mm. Mm. That feels wild. That feels like a complete, like, complete otherness. And it's like, no, we could have that. That's the amazing thing about science fiction. So much of it is there is a world we could imagine that doesn't have all of these things Mm -hmm. that Mm -hmm. we could fight for.
8: And let me say, I do agree with you, but we have to be cautious. Because we have to give these hopes and dreams to our children, to our peers. But we also have to impress upon them that without a credit score, mm. you can't play in this world right now. Mm. So we, and and that's kind of how we are still being disenfranchised. Um, after the financial crash in 2007, 2008, I never had a Got another credit card. I never got. If I can't pay for it cash, I don't need it. Mm. So, cut to start looking for a house. We've never seen this. You have no credit. Not bad credit. You have no credit. It's like, yeah, I haven't made payments on anything since 2007, 2008. Um, well, we can't help you. We see that you're doing well. We see that but without a credit history nor a credit score, can't help you.
9: Mm.
8: So where we are creating ways to get money, what we are failing on as a collective is ways to keep and grow money. Mm -hmm. Because until we, and it is, what you described, that's the goal, Mm. that is utopia. But until we get there, we have to empower our young people that these are the skills that you need to be a player to get there. Because it's not, you can be a a, a, a device for change, but you have to be a device first. You have to be an implement. You have to be an instrument.
5: As we, as we build leaders inside of our community, Mm -hmm. either in entertainment or outside of entertainment, we could start to create a fabric of organics. So what do I mean by that? So let's look, let's, we're talking about science fiction here, right? Mm -hmm. How do we create science fiction worlds where people of color are organically interwoven Mm -hmm. into the narrative, Mm -hmm. right? How do we, when we lead with leadership, it becomes an organic part of our nature, nurture nature, and then we inspire other folks to do the same. And that's part of the problem that I'm that we see in science fiction specifically, is that there, there isn't really any, there isn't much organic sort of bipoc fabric within the narrative because of where it's being written from so my call to action to all of us here Mm -hmm. as creators is to start working towards that organic nature like i think of like neil degrasse tyson like i love that man i want to hug him i want to like have milkshakes with him you know what i'm saying and he is very organically Mm -hmm. bright and he happens to be a person of color Mm -hmm. Um, a series that i'm currently producing now is a dystopian world in a not so distant Los Angeles. Um, It is a very sophisticated script that deals with neural implants, hacker culture, the underbelly of black market crime, cryptocurrency, Mm. blockchain, metaversal land, territorialism, and all these sorts of things. You know, brain, computer interfacing, crypto art, like it's heavy, right? Typically, (laughs) Caucasian themes, Right. right? But you're gonna realize that I've only written one caucasian and it's an antagonistic detective. Mm. Everybody else is some sort of shade of brown, black or or latino or or pacific islander or other. You mean like the Be- world?
8: Right, exactly.
5: Because <laughs> I want to cuz I want to try to create a could like start to create a quilt of organic leadership in front and behind the camera, so we can slowly educate people and subconsciously reprogram all of us, including Mm -hmm. me, to believe that leadership can be of color. Mm. And that's Mm. really what we're ultimately facing a lot, is that all the leadership is not is not of color and right.
3: that is again why we don't we have these rooms that don't even realize that they have a problem with diversity mm-hmm. because there's no diversity in the rooms that are making the decision That's so it real. doesn't yeah. reach that point because no one there has a vested interest in making it better because it doesn't affect them mm. Their bottom line is definitely not being affected for they're gonna make money regardless so they're gonna continue to go down these avenues and I think I've been to places where a lot more obviously than I want to where I'm the only black person in those rooms and I've been places, I've had memberships at places and gone with my husband who happens to be white and he walks in and he gets a welcome home. I'm on his arm, I will have changed my hair maybe a smidge from the time that I was there before and I will get asked, Okay, who are you here with? How can we help you? I can enter the same room as my husband. I remember the day Charlottesville happened. I was out for a bike ride. We stopped and we went to go and eat at Bubba Gum. And I'm holding my stepson's hand, standing there next to my husband, and the lady turns to my husband and goes, how many in your party? And my husband's like, oh, well, we've got five because our vandalizers are there and they look at me, how many in your party? Mm. He just told you. Well, how many in your party? And she continues to say this, and it gets to the point where I just don't wanna be there anymore, because I'm already dealing. This goes to one, that's a horrible experience, but that's one experience that's happening in a day where I'm processing chaos, where I'm watching people get run over by cars, and It goes back to talking about the experiences that we face. To go to work, sometimes we have to go to work on a day where we just watched 47 videos autoplay on Twitter of a person that looks like us being murdered in the street. And we're supposed to not only go to work, be normal, be there, be present, but we are also supposed to explain to every other person that doesn't look like us, why something happened that we don't ourselves have the luxury of understanding. And that is a big issue for me, is that we don't have time to process before we have to process it for someone else, before we have to make it make sense to someone else that is not us. And you want to ask me, why does racism exist? You want to ask me why we don't have diversity. You want me to sit in a panel like this, and talk about diversity and inclusion and explain it so that other people who don't even have to care about it after the conversation is over can better understand it and better... and better grasp something that I don't have the luxury of grasping and processing myself. Mm. And that is what is infuriating about the fact that we are having this conversation in a world as diverse as the one that we exist in. We keep finding ourselves in these situations where people don't explain until we are in pain or they don't understand. We are explaining, we are laying ourselves bare, we are putting ourselves, hey, I've dealt with this hurt, I've dealt with this hurt, I've been treated like this, I've been treated as less than, here's my hopes. But a lot of times when you're telling people those things that they very much ask to hear, They are responding from a defensive place. Mm -hmm. It is from a place of I'm asking you, but I'm not asking you to hear you. I am asking you to find a part of me that is made to feel better. Mm -hmm. I need to feel better. You are hurting, but I need you to make me feel better. And a lot of those situations when someone has said something, it's one of those things we talked about the other day. Mm -hmm. You are dealing with racism in the world and just trying to show up someone says something out of the way, somebody makes a comment in hair and makeup, somebody makes a comment in a room, you decide, hey, um, that really made me uncomfortable. Not only do you become a problem, you've become an attacker. Mm. You have become a person who has now made this person feel, and if you correct them and say, and a correction in the sense of racism is very, uh, in dealing with those situations, it's not me saying, hey, you are being a racist. It is saying, hey, what you said hurt me. And I'm giving you the opportunity to course correct and to know that it hurt me so that maybe you don't do it to me or to anyone else again. Mm. That is a kindness that I am giving to you. But that kindness (coughs) is received as an attack. Mm. And it is, well, why would you say that to me? How dare you call me racist? I could be confiding in a friend who happens to be Caucasian about just something that I've experienced but I have to respond and tell them the story in a way that they are not able to internalize it and take what I've said as a criticism of them, as a criticism of a whole people. And it's the, oh, I started my sentence with white people. I started with this. I'd made a generalized comment. So everything said after the point is able to be dismissed. It doesn't matter what I said. You heard white people and you didn't think Oh, like I'm not included in this like bundle or like hey like what can I listen to from this conversation and learn from you? Automatically said everything you say after this point is invalid because you hurt my feelings because you used a label Mm
9: -hmm. You
3: use this label and therefore nothing else that you say after this point Will make any difference Mm -hmm. and the thing that we are missing in a lot of these situations in rooms in our very just every day-to-day life is just a little bit of understanding, compassion, and empathy.
9: Mm
3: -hmm. It all goes back to the humanity that we want to exist with, the humanity that we hope to just be seen with a little bit of grace, to not be seen as a threat, to not have to plan how you're gonna dress before you leave the room, and how you're gonna talk to an officer that pulls you over, when your very skin is threatening.
5: Mm. When, and and that, that's, a, that's an education that happens in the household, how mm. to deal with authority, mm-hmm. how to yeah, deal absolutely. with municipality, how to deal with a man in a, or a woman mm. in a uniform. Mm-hmm. That's, that's unfortunately part of the language of being a person of color yeah, in this absolutely. modern world.
3: And For go sure. watch every procedural that exists And you see, I watched Training Day two days ago. Oh boy. Mm. And- Choices were made. (laughs) Strong choices. Listen. Very strong choices. Watching that movie, it is one of those things where you're like, especially now, under the eye of all that has publicly happened.
8: Well, a microcosm of this thing we call entertainment is that Denzel won an Academy Award. For training day, the same year he played John Keel, Mm-hmm. A mm-hmm. black man who would do anything to save his child. That was one of the greatest performances I've ever seen. Mm-hmm. Mind blowing. And the fact that he won for training day, mm-hmm. I literally wanted to quit the business. He mm-hmm. oh, should have won for Malcolm X. It should have won for Malcolm X, but I'm talking about the same year. Yeah. 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 I was like, we've, we've gone nowhere. Mm. We've gone the same thing with nowhere. Viola.
4: When she got nominated for the help and you know she's recently come out and said, you know, I wish I hadn't done that film. It was not worth the nomination, which they didn't even give her, uh, the award at the end of the day. It's it's hard, Christina, because you know, as you mentioned, to me it's come down to a situation of who has power and who doesn't. Mm. I'm no longer entertaining people who don't have power over me with these stupid questions. <laughs> we don't have time No, I don't have time, I don't have time. I have too many things to do. I'm exhausted literally every day. I don't have time to address it. If that ends our friendship, we'll go back. And I I think to MJ's point earlier, the power of no, mm. right? Mm-hmm. The power of your no, right? These we, we have spoken a lot about the way white capitalism has impacted our careers, our daily lives, our childhoods, right? Mm. We can't escape that, Mm. it it, it is a power system under which we live, so there's no escaping that. What we have control over, and the thing that I try to focus on is is what do I have control over in this very moment, Mm. is who do I give my energy to? Mm. And who do I let continue to have power over me? And it's hard, because again, this industry is small. It's small, so when you say no to one person, you might be saying no to six people. Mm -hmm. You have no idea who they know, what they're gonna say about you once you leave how you carry yourself from day to day is not necessarily how people think of you. Just because this is an industry that talks, it's frustrating and it's challenging. But at the end of the day, you have to know who's gonna have your back full time. Not when it's convenient for them, not when they don't feel challenged, not when not when they see an opportunity for them to become successful based off of the success you've yeah.
8: achieved. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's so, that's, you know, I, I, I've raised my kids with there's only 100% for you or 100% against you. Absolutely. Because 99% for you means they're 1% against you and that will outweigh the other 99%. 99. There is no fuck middle ground there is only these two polar opposites that's it and i think if we a lot of time and we're that we're the that wasn't so bad people Mm. This interaction wasn't so bad. We
4: got to find a silver lighting. <laughs> <laughs>
8: and when that's the best you can hope for, Ooh, that's a long road to travel. Well, that's
6: what happens when your entire life is a constantly moving goalpost, right? Mm. Right. Blackness is that in and of itself. We'll give you 40 acres and a mule. Psych. We'll do this for you. Psych. Yeah. We've got government programs. Psych. And that just.
3: Psych. Keep... We just gave you a disease. Right. <laughs> you know?
6: And so it just keeps when you live an entire existence based around your needs not being met and always based on folks breaking their promises, and on the other, hand, other end of that, if you take, just put that side aside, the other folks are overtly against you. Oh. So the only middle space that does exist is this feeling of of not having anyone to advocate for you other than yourself. So that that obviously reflects itself in many different ways. Um, kind of spinning back, I took some time to just kind of listen and take in everything, because truth be told, guys, I,
8: I love you all. This is incredible. <laughs> um, but uh, just to, we couldn't do this 20 years ago. Mm-hmm. We, yeah. You couldn't say to me, I love you, brother. I right? no. love, love you. you, I love you, I love you, I love you. They kept that promise. Right. They convinced us, here's the pie. Here's the people of color pie. If you tell somebody else of color you love them, you got to give them a piece of your pie. Because there's not enough to go around. I worked for George Jackson and Doug McHenry. God bless you, George. He's passed on. They were the first shit, not just persons of color, two brothers, first $100 million deal in Hollywood. Mm -hmm. New Jack City, broke, produced by Jackson McHenry. Now... What they had convinced us as a people, you could be the Jackson Henry nigger who went to Brown, Harvard, Yale, and Columbia, or you could be the Spike Lee John Singleton type of nigger. I have still yet to this day ever read for Spike, never read for, for John. And it, it, those were how they kept us from uniting power. Mm-hmm. I can't. You couldn't be happy for another brother. You couldn't be happy for another sister. You couldn't be happy for him because, in your mind, you have been convinced. Shit, that's less of the pie I can get.
6: It, it kind of brought me back to this moment that I had with my dad, and I'm I'm very thankful for him because he instilled me with a lot of, um, a lot of readiness for the world ahead. You know. Um, around that time when, when uh, Denzel won the Oscar for Training Day, uh, my father and I watched both those movies. I was a total cinephile, so like, you know, I was like, man, look, I know it's probably a crazy film, but you gotta let me check this out, you know? Um, and I immediately became perplexed by that. So I was like, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. So we, <laughs> there's a system that in place, this, at this point, this is a system I wanna readily take part in. Mm-hmm. You know? Um, there's a system in place where this can happen, where someone can play one of the most endearing roles I've ever seen and also a role that makes me feel so distant from myself. Like, it's not someone I could ever even see. Like, I, I, I'm, I grew up in South Philly, I know thugs and gangsters, you know? But I've never seen a person act like this. And don't get me wrong, he won, you know? But like, I had to turn to my dad and go, hey man, um, so is it like, is it really like this? You know, like like everywhere? You know, and I, I mean, at that point, I come up against plenty of racism, and at that point, he moved me to the burbs, so. Day to day, you know, but um, mm-hmm. he goes, yeah, man. He goes, uh, two things. He goes, you know, if you uh, if you want to break the game, you got to learn how to play it first, which mm-hmm. you know, uh, and uh, blackness is like bodybuilding. If you want anything great, you know, it has to come with a ton of resistance, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. point blank. You have to you, you have to go in and and, uh, and and take that with everything. And so, um, coming into the spaces that I come into now, there's you know, almost constant frustration, whether it be. Uh, uh, on a set, whether it be a discussion about equity, whether it be something that is that is uh, based in current events, I, I've uh, uh, to some of the the, the uh, concepts you were speaking of earlier, where you almost have to become this education system um, in an effort to achieve any level of allyship, right? Mm-hmm. Um, that became a regular everyday part of my life during the during the pandemic. I I marched ten times. I'd spoken from uh, San Diego to to Seattle at the Chop and Chess. Um, and every day it was, you know, some person coming to ask me things for their own purposes. Now I have a very like fifty-fifty mindset about that because I feel like some people are—they're like golden retrievers, you know—they mean well but they just don't. There's just nothing, <laughs> nothing you can do about it, right? And those people, sometimes you have to take the time to educate them because they might not have anybody else in their life that will do that. Mm. But you can tell the person that's there to talk to you for themselves, mm. and those are the folks I do not have time for, mm. you know. And I take I take a bit of your energy. Hey, look, listen. I want to help you, but I feel like a lot of this you can Google. You know, mm-hmm. um, that's
4: kind. You're mm-hmm. mm-hmm. such a kind and gentle.
6: Response. I just,
3: I try. That's not mm-hmm. the only response they get, but that's, <laughs> that's,
4: that's the I one it. I keep
3: in my wallet for sure. If your allyship <laughs> ends, like when you get uncomfortable, then you need to question whether or not you're an ally. Exactly. I exactly. think one
7: of my favorite things that I started to instill, probably like late spring, early summer, twenty twenty, during the uprisings, i I looked at several of my white friends and I said, y'all collect your people. Mm. Hey. If y'all people have questions, I will, I'm will. i gonna call you up and be like, go get your people, because I'm not answering these questions anymore. So I have like three white friends that I'll call up and be like, this other human, you need to talk to them because they're asking me stupid questions <laughs> and I'm not doing this emotional labor anymore. Like, I'm just not, I'm not doing it. If they can't Google, because a lot of times I think be like, I'll be like, oh my god, it's on Google. Go. Go hither. But I think it is, there's a human element to that. It's also really nice when another white person looks at another white person and says, hey, this is our problem. Yep. So let's talk through mm-hmm. this. Again, a yeah. solid ally. Yeah, and I'll just be like, but that's emotional labor y'all get to take. <laughs> mm-hmm. Because I got my I'm I got my own shit. I got so much shit. Mm-hmm. Like cause it's I mean, I have an
3: emotional labor rate sheet if you'd like to see
7: it. Oh, me. and that oh was like, I need that. I, was on, I oh. was on this. I was on this feature. I was on this feature in Chicago, and I ended up quitting it. I was first AD, and I was just like, I'm not doing this because it was just like. The director was a, he called himself a working actor, which was a joke. Oh, he hasn't boy. been on, he hasn't been on screen in 15 years. Mm-hmm. He's a glorified CrossFit instructor. <laughs> and, um. Tell <laughs> And, uh. But he was put in charge of the $750,000 movie. Mm-hmm. And I'm over here being like, you don't, what are we, it's the smoke and mirrors thing Wait, again. Okay, yeah. And then the producer was like, well, if you could just, Explain to him what you need. His job? And I was like, stop. No no no. He's a nover size man, child. Yeah. And there are a lot of other things that I could be saying right now. They're like, well, I mean I just I laid them out before I quit. <laughs> um, but also I started sobbing mm. because I was so tired. Mm. And but they were and they're like because the vast majority of my department were people of color. Mm. And were people who were just getting in the industry, who wanted the opportunity. This was the biggest film that they had been on, and I was like trying not to be this jaded ass motherfucker over mm-hmm. here, but I was just like, I I started crying because there was no, I did not have anything else left in the tank to keep them safe too, mm-hmm. and I think that's the like. That's the part that I get I get scared about for the folks who are holding the door open. It's just like we can't do it forever,
9: mm-hmm. so Thank it's you. like
7: the. When you when you're talking about sort of like like you said knowing knowing the rules in order so that we can change them, I feel like we know the rules now. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I feel like most of us know the rules, and also there's a lot of I mean like Gen Z's over here being like these rules seem stupid. I cannot wait. Yeah,
9: yeah. <laughs> these rules are yeah. like. Obvious
7: rules seem real dumb and and, and bad for us and I'm like yes come with you are (laughs) correct (laughs) let's let's do this and they're like yeah we want financial literacy and we want media literacy and all of these other things but like if it smells like shit it's probably shit Mm -hmm. and we shouldn't be doing that anymore Mm -hmm. and I think the like I think that's why it's so it's so fascinating just to see and obviously I'm an elder millennial, but like Gen Z's got their issues. Mm-hmm. Like, I mean, the perpetually online thing. I'd be like, sometimes I'm just like, if you got off the internet,
9: just
3: take a <laughs> walk, <laughs> just like,
7: out there. Yeah. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> and um, but I think the like, I have I have so much hope, mm-hmm. and I'm not I'm like, I grew up I was adopted, predominantly white family, super religious, super conservative. Not all of those things automatically equal transphobic and racist household. Mm -hmm. But it did It kind (laughs) of did. And so like, I didn't have the parents who were showing me the things. I didn't have the aunties, I didn't have the uncles. There was just, and like, I didn't have, I didn't have the people, I didn't have the people in person. But I had, I had books Mm
9: -hmm. Mm -hmm. and I had
7: stories. And my parents censored music and they censored movies. But they didn't censor They books. never read the books. They never it's censored crazy. The books. <laughs> it's wild to me. It's so it's like when I got that library card, I was like like when I got the adult library card and I was out of the juvenile section, you would like you would have thought I won the motherfucking lottery.
3: Um, you, but, did. And, um, yes. you did. I literally was about to be like, to quote the great philosopher Arthur, "Having fun isn't <laughs> hard." hard We've when when you you got you a
9: library card. <laughs>
7: <laughs> and um, and that was it. That was the. That's when it cracked open. Where I was like, I was on this hunt to find people who didn't feel like they fit. There was an out. There was something, but they they were at war with their brains and their bodies, but they also loved them. And Mm -hmm. I think that was so much of the way that I grew up where I was like, I am in this vessel and I am with this brain. And there are so many parts of myself that I understand that I like, and I don't understand why the rest of the world has a problem with it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And to see characters and to like, in my mind's eye reflected on the page who get it. And like, I was talking, I was talking to a, a close friend recently where like, A Wrinkle in Time, the film adaptation, had its problems. Mm-hmm. It's a terrible movie. Oh. <laughs> <laughs>
9: like, right
5: now, <laughs> I'm <laughs> this movie at my
7: grown ass age. Well, I and I think the, the, the reason I bring it up is because when I read the book originally, Meg Murray was a black girl. Mm-hmm. I didn't like it never questioned like in my mind I never questioned that Meg Murray was anything but what I was. Mm-hmm. And to see to see her operate in these spaces and like to have the witches look at her and be like, no, nope, exactly the thing that you are. All of the things that have made the world look at you and say no are the reason that you are able to complete this thing. Nobody else, your super smart, intelligent little brother, he's not gonna be the one who can crack it. Mm-hmm. And like, it never crossed my mind that Meg Murray is probably white and Irish. Like, <laughs> <laughs> it was we like- you see ourselves in the stories yes, we're right. You create right. those narratives. <laughs> yeah, and I think the like, so the like, <sighs> I don't know. That was giant ramble fest on my part. I got real
3: passionate. Let's <laughs> be um, like, so passionate. Mm-hmm. Go for it. We always err no on, on the side of passion because mm-hmm. that passion is honest, and it is... We, I think sometimes we get mistaken for angry and all of these different uh, things yes. when we are literally just being passionate, but we're going to take a passionate bathroom break. Oh,
9: thank God. <laughs> <laughs>
3: If they just showed you a break, we're back from it. And if you can't tell from my demeanor, there's something that we're gonna talk about that we don't get to see a lot in stories lately. We're gonna skip the trauma and we're gonna talk about our joy. We're gonna talk about fandoms that make us happy. We're gonna talk about where we are right now, what we're looking forward to possibly. I don't know, the sky is the limit. Let's experience the greatest way to see a person is to see them talk about something that they are absolutely passionate about. And I wanna see the passion on this couch. And I'm gonna to start to my left, little well, Jalil. Oh, crap, hey!
9: <laughs> <laughs>
3: oh, man. I'm
4: passionate about so many, I'm really passionate about, like, fandom, specifically. I think when you can get into the groove of a good fandom, and you're like, for me, I love Star Wars. I love it so much. I like, I, I like, pirates in it and I like the aliens. I like the ships and I like the intrigue. I like the political thriller of it and I like the magic wizards. Everything about it is so cool. And when you get into the right space of that fandom, oh my God. Like I had... One of my best friends and I are watching Andor separately. And so we finally got a chance to come together and talk about the latest episode. And when I tell you we went on for 45 minutes about one scene and whether it's plausible in this space and should it have happened or should it have, that is my favorite thing. It's just the aspect of debate and the deconstruction of story. I think that's what we come to it for. I love fantasy, getting to just get lost in it and... and, Just using like all of that space as an escape. And particularly when it comes to video games, man, getting, I just, they're bringing back the uh, living room video game, which has been a real thrill for me. I just got the new Gotham Knights. So I was like, bro, when are we playing? Can we play together? Play on the same couch and do the missions together. I just think to me, fandom saved my life at like multiple points in time, but specifically as a depressed teenager who was undiagnosed as depressed. First in getting to escape in books, and then later when you find people who like those books, shout out Chicago Comics, (laughs) there was like, oh, this is where my people are. And they're just as weird and unsure about their existence as I am. And they care as much about these characters as I do. And I knew I was going to be into fandom for life. You know, my parents are nerds and they love sci-fi and everything, but it wasn't until I got to Chicago comics and um they had the entire first print edition of Sandman so it's all the, mm. the issues in their very first printing bundled and it was like they were selling it so cheap it was like $250 but I was a poor college kid so for me I was like when am I gonna have $200 to spend on this I have to pay rent and they saw me just looking at it and just like dreaming I'm like I need to have it it's on a top shelf it's behind the counter and this woman comes up to me and she's like do you want it? I can just get it down for you. I was like, no, I can't afford it. She's like, well, we could just hold it for you. I was like, you couldn't possibly hold such a treasure for me for any length of time. It could be six months. She's like, we will just hold it for you if you want it. We want it to go to a good home, somebody who cares about it. And I was like, wow. And it's to, to this day, my most treasured possession, it's older than I am. It is getting that story helped me make the career decisions I needed to make to get out here because I knew that Neil Gaiman was 28 when he wrote it. I was 24 when I was reading it and I was like, oh, there's space and time and I can take my actual lived life and put it on a page in a weird fantasy space and people will still acknowledge and potentially love that. And it was just, it was literally a life changing moment. And it was all just because I liked comics and someone saw that I was passionate about a book. I think that that's the power of fandom is it can take you all over the world without you leaving your living room. Mm.
3: Oh that was beautiful. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you so for that. <laughs> it was like it was layered. It was a roller coaster, but I feel like <laughs> like the genuine oh this I love this. This is joy. I want to hear your stories. I want people to hear your stories. I want people to see you. I feel like I just saw like the Joel I fell in there. <laughs> <Like>, it's beautiful. <laughs> Tell me about your joy. Wow well, I
5: I I stay perpetually grateful. Like, it's just, <laughs> I have to, you know, speaking of recovery, like, I'm sober. Yeah. I'm five and a half years sober. I need to stay grateful. Otherwise, I got a whole other list of issues. Mm-hmm. So, um, and I, I live in that, man. I stay sober for a living. I make money as a hobby. Mm-hmm. That's my truth. Mm-hmm. And, um...
7: True words, four and a half years, yeah, same. Mm-hmm. It's just one Da-da-da. of those things.
5: And that's things. stay sober for a living. I make money as a hobby. Without my living, I'm not eligible for that hobby. Mm-hmm. Not eligible for life in any way, shape, or form. Oh. And, uh, so God guides me in everything that I do, but I'm, uh, as it relates to projects, I'm really, really excited about currently painting my masterpiece. Um, you know, I-, I got my SAG card in 2004 doing extra work. I did extra work for three years. I came here with a classically trained with a BFA in theater and film, uh, trained by a legendary, uh, Broadway director named Marshall Mason. And I was convinced Hollywood was waiting for me.
2: Mm. Mm. <laughs> Boy, was I so... <laughs> <laughs>
5: That was such a real hearty laugh. (laughs) That
9: we all (laughs) identified.
5: Man, I, and I, I, mean, I had cockroaches in the kitchen my first three apartments. Ooh. My first apartment was in Silver Lake on a hardwood floor in February. I had an air mattress, not a pot to piss in. I used to put on three pairs of pants, three shirts, and I bunch up my clothes in a ball, and I slept like this. And I was, my first job was I was slinging hot dogs and hamburgers in Universal City Walk. And I was mm. proud I had a job in Hollywood. Boy, mm. listen, <laughs> I always just carried that. Like, my vision in life is attack the island and burn the boat. Mm. Mm-hmm. That's it. There's nothing behind me that's going to serve me and so but through you know, I was I was a slave I was a hostage to myself. I was in the bondage of self and Through 18 years of of producing independent film and suiting up and showing up um, I'm now producing the first ever live action series for the Ethereum blockchain to be produced by a web 3 company in direct partnership with my production company exertion 3 films So what does that mean? Um, I am the executive producer, creator, showrunner, and playing the lead of a new series called Razor, which is a not so distant dystopian Los Angeles that takes you deep into the world of neural implants, hacker culture, and the underbelly of black market crime. And so now, uh, Gala Games is arguably one of the biggest blockchain gaming companies in the world. They launched Gala Music where they have partnerships with like Snoop Dogg, Dr. Dre, Ice Cube, and they raised five billion and they're putting a billion into Gala Film. And my company is the first company to partner and roll out content with them. And uh, this has never been done before. We are, speaking of fandom, you know, we already dropped an NFT collection before even rolling a camera. So that is storyboards, concept posters, pre-visualizations, animatics, and each one of these NFTs has different utility and they will actually be earning tokens. So when people own these tokens, they will actually be able to earn tokenomics by holding that token off the success of the series. So we're actually reading, we're doing an IRL table read with 150 people. We're gonna be reading the entire season out loud, wow. mm-hmm. like doing everything out in the open. One of the NFTs is the pilot episode that's 25% redacted, like a CIA document. But are you gonna
3: do it in like VR?
5: Uh so, so we've already built AR and VR worlds. There's there we've actually already built those worlds that are informed by the script. So you'll take the script and you'll be able to AR activate it, and then the, the redactions will glow like UV light, so you'll be able to uh. see the underlying text. Mm-hmm. And then it creates motions and sequence and physical moments that actually appear on the page. So we're really playing with the notions of fandom and utility and audience engagement. We're doing a Twitter casting competition for three lines in the series, right? People are going to hashtag RZR casting and put their, they're going to put their self tape out into the ecosystem and the razor NFT holders will upvote of all the tapes which top five Whoa. go to our casting director who's rep by caa and then they will actually be cast in the series and mm-hmm. this is all the stuff that we're doing before we wow. even go into principal photography so it's it's really 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 exciting that like there it is that that motion picture entertainment and cinema i fundamentally believe in the next three to five years will be somehow tethered to a blockchain mechanism
9: mm-hmm.
5: guaranteed it's unequivocable guaranteed so even if you look at like Gaming, for example, or if you look at like sports, for example, they'll be tethered to HoloLens. So you'll watch your NFL game and you'll have your HoloLens and you'll have metaversal elements that will be appearing in front of you. You'll be able to push in on the 50-yard line. Did he actually step in? Mm. Oh, you did step out. Okay, cool, let me play. That. Let me check the under over in Vegas. Oh, let me buy that jersey. Oh, I got price on that jersey. Let me put that back in the market. Oh, I just sold it for .25 ETH. And you're watching, you game. getting. Okay, let me get back to the game now. Wait, right, hold up. And and all this stuff is going to be connected to oh, a like blockchain. Oh, Tony mechanism. Stark
3: in the one scene in Iron Man when he's that <laughs> yeah, board. Yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah,
5: it's it's very much like Minority Report. Like that's how I see, see the future of so entertainment. That's those are the days because I went to Minority
8: right? Report. There you go. Uh, wise, uh, or Tony Stark. Yeah, which uh, also had uh,
3: really great interfaces.
5: Whereas now we're able to create content that is informed by the demographic of who we are in Web3, which is why when I conceptualized this series, Black Mirror meets Mr. Robot, Black Mirror meets Mr. Robot, that's what rang in my head. Mm. Because I knew the 18 to 35 year old male demographic that is crypto, blockchain, and Web3, that's what they wanna see. I was like, okay, cool. This is gonna be the boilerplate. Now, how do I build that out? How do I build that out? How do I build that out? And uh, the lead character, Grim, he develops this technology that he calls the Acumen. And through a, a series of failed craniotomies, eventually it into his cerebrum and it allows him to access the world wide web instantaneously in real-time download and transmit that data in a nanosecond and in a den of thieves you can imagine he, he is either infinitely good or infinitely dangerous depending on which way his moral compass sways how do you be the least of all evils while still maintaining the desire of a God complex Mm. And it becomes a chess match between him and other warring factions within the grid zone of 2035 post-nuclear blast Eastern Europe. After the war of oil and grain and all this lore we're building, so I could go on at infinitum. Yeah, I
8: very do. So <laughs> <laughs> oh my God, it's,
9: it's very. I'll, I'll, wait, I'll it's a- I'm on my phone. like
5: oh, yeah yes. 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 <laughs> Go on. It's, 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 it's really exciting. I
3: do yeah. want to say that when you were yeah. telling the one part about your story and you were like, and it rises up, I saw in my head like a little like screen, like rising up and pulling up a little blue draw outline mountain. I think that's cool it was a great visual picture that you painted oh thank and you, you could see it. once again like i don't know there's certain stuff like you're building a legacy you're creating a thing that carries on beyond you and a lot of people like that serves and i think that's really cool that you're like you don't you don't you aren't waiting for something you're creating something and I think that's really cool and i love that you care about it so much
5: thank you and what the, the most beautiful thing that i love about it is when i You know, Claire Coons is my casting director, and she's at CAA. And when I sent her the casting deck, like I said to you guys earlier, there's only one white character. One, <laughs> the call sheet one through 10, there's one white character. Everybody else is African-American, mm. Pacific Islander, Asian, Latino, or other. You know, it's it's what I believe this world will look like. And, you, and no one's gonna look at it and be like, oh, that's a black show, or that's yeah. a Latino show, or they're all running for the border, whatever, whatever they say.
3: There's a space where everyone no, can no. see themselves represented. Mm-hmm.
5: This is the world, you know? And that's what we're creating, so. <laughs> that's
6: <laughs> Join uh, me. <laughs> so, I mean, honestly, I, I'm I'm very much a uh, very similar fan of fandom. Um, without it, I wouldn't exist as a creator, uh, honestly, um, especially in the cosplay space. So I'm very, very thankful. I, I took to, to comic books and sci-fi at a very young age thanks to, uh, if I don't say this right, they'll both get on me, uh, Star Trek and Stargate and wrestling I got from my mother. Mm-hmm. Uh, Everything else, uh, anything nerdy, anything uh, with with films, was from my dad, you know. Uh, so, growing up, those comic books were a way for my parents to explain the world to me. Um, uh, I've always had heart problems. Um, my mom introduced one uh, one of my mom's friends through a conversation introduced me to both the Hulk and Iron Man. Mm-hmm. I was a young inner city kid. I had anger problems and I had a bum ticker, <laughs> you know. And so, like these two things really. Um, rooted me in some sort of hero that I could see in myself, whether they looked like me or not. It was just the general experience of that. Um, falling in love with that over time, you know, of course, you, as a kid, you get your favorite T-shirt or your favorite hero, whatever, you know, and then that, that crosses into cosplay. And as a, as a as a hobby or as a space that I've entered into, I would have never guessed that um, it would have taken the turn that it has, but that's the beauty of fandom, right? You never know um, who loves what you love. Mm-hmm um and so to be someone who got into this simply because uh you know there's just not enough folks that look like me doing it um and just to kind of have it there's a reference for someone who is also trying to do that um to see these extensive communities that grow out of that is just the most incredible thing these started as some some person's independent properties ideas you know Uh, very very similar to you i I have a a property that i'm working on that's loosely based on my life growing up in philadelphia Um, And it's called the power of touch. It's about a young boy who develops the power of psychometry. If you're familiar with Star Wars That's the ability to access uh, memories through touching innate objects Mm. um, inanimate objects Um, That leads him on a very long discovery and uh, There's an also an element of time travel uh, To where he sets out on a personal journey to rewrite a lot of wrongs in black history Mm. while learning along the way that some of those things need to happen in order for us to move forward so it's very um, it was one of those, like, long projects that I just kind of taken a paragraph here, a paragraph here. If you're familiar with Philadelphia, you're familiar with the move bombing. Um, mm. um, I, my grandfather grew up four or five blocks down the street, <gasps> stayed in that house. Mm. So a lot of my summers I would ride by the one lone wall that they left standing as a reminder for many years. Mm. Um, and I always wondered what that was, you know. It's just one wall that looked like it belonged to a house, and it is charred all the way up the side. Standing in the middle of a field of grass, and um, one day as a kid on the way home, I touched it, and like I felt the most overwhelming feeling of sadness that I have ever felt, and I could not really put it to words, and I didn't say anything, and I didn't ask about it for about a year, and then when my dad and my grandfather told me, I broke down. Um, that story stayed with me for a very long time, and through um, both history, you know, a love of history and that, that love of fandom, I realized that that story could resonate with a lot of people. Um, as I started to work on that project a little bit more and start to put more comic elements into it, I realized that, even though know, it's a story about a little black boy, it's something that does touch everybody. And that is really what fandom is about. You create something that touches everybody, no matter what the reflection is. Art is, and always will be, in the eye of the beholder, right? Mm. And so like, if we're out here making art for each other, if we're making art to inform other people, um, it's always important that you include those perspectives. But sometimes those stories are about people that people can't see themselves in. So when you have uh, a space like sci-fi or comic books where everyone kind of comes into it with the same energy. You know, we're, we're here because we love something, but we're here because we see ourselves in these people. Um, as a creator, as a person who is a part of that community no matter what, you can't help but be inspired by it.
3: There's so many parts of us, like just the different range of just these first three stories of joy that we've heard that have resonated on so many different levels. Like that's the power of story. Like we are hearing stories. These aren't stories, though they may have trauma, they are not trauma stories. Mm. They are universal stories, they are to quote one of my favorite people. It's the heart in the art.
9: Mm-hmm.
3: And I want you to see this. I want you to hear these. This is as much important a part of our conversation as our gripes, our grievances, our hurts, our pains. This is important. I want you to hear all these stories of joy. I want you to let those stories resonate with you as much as you let the stories of trauma resonate with you. And that you take these moments to enjoy humanity. Mm
9: -hmm.
3: And people existing with different interests, different talents, different areas, just telling you a story. And we're carrying on. Oh, ooh, things that are,
7: things that are making me happy right now. I, the fact that some shows are returning back to what television used to be, where you got like an episode a week, is bringing yeah. me a lot of joy. Yeah. Where I'm like, oh, this is cute. Like, I don't have to, like, there's no guilt in the binge watch anymore. I'm just like, all right, now. Um, the one that's probably, I have been saving it. I'm very excited. Um, it's the season finale of Great British Breakoff. Off. Yes! Um, waiting for that. Very excited <laughs> that this was a super wholesome season this year. There, I was like, oh God, but I love so many of them. I mean, can't really, like, Giuseppe's energy last year was so good. That is, I, don't even, I don't even know how to touch that one. Um, so like, that's bringing me a lot of joy. There's also, the, um, N.K. dropped a new book, N.K. Jemison. Yeah, she dropped the sequel to The City We Became, which is probably, like, if y'all have never read any N.K. Jemison, like, you're missing out. <laughs> <laughs> uh, because, like, I don't know, it's the, like, having a complicated relationship with, like, faith and religion and things of that nature. When I read an N.K. book, I'm like, oh, She's taking me to church. Mm-hmm. Like it feels it feels that good. And it's not because they're easy books to read. It's like the you I, like I find myself reading NK's work and I'm like, A, I have never I never questioned the confidence in which she writes. Mm-hmm. Every word has this assurance on the page um doesn't mean that it's pleasant it doesn't mean that it isn't hard it doesn't mean that the characters are all like you're not rooting for all of them um but the worlds that she builds are so deep and interesting and um and complex and so i just like i kind of like that's i that's like i was like nobody fucking talk to me Mm
4: the sequel has come out. (laughs) I will see you in 72 hours. Picking Up by Kate Jemison book is similar to Picking Up an Octavia Butler book, where you're like, I'm about to be in for some very hard truths, but also just the most epic journey. Like, it's about to be, like, just, just next level. I love falling into her books. And just disappearing, like you said, it's yeah. really beautiful. I describe reading
7: Octavia Butler like, okay, so you have to get a life-saving surgery, but you're not allowed to have painkillers <laughs> because her stuff, she will cut you fast, mm. so quickly, and the precision of her language. Mm. It's not, it's not flowery. It's not like, it's not like the, it, it doesn't. It's not one of these things that lingers, it's not self-indulgent, but damn, she knew how to put some words together. Mm. <laughs> which, which Butler book would you recommend? Um, I I always start with folks' with short stories. If they got a short story collection, I start with their short story collection, because short stories are really fucking hard to write. Mm-hmm. Um, but it also gives you an idea of how they build worlds. Mm. And um, and also the cool thing about short stories is you get to throw ideas at the wall and just play with them. Um, I think uh, like the fascinating thing about Butler's short stories is she doesn't she didn't actually enjoy writing short stories. So the only short stories that we have of hers are the ones that are actually published. She's like these are the ones y'all don't get any others because she's like I she she said I only write. I know what I want to write. If it's a short story, then it's a short story. It's not me trying to figure out if this is if there's a novel in here. There, I know when it's a novel. Um, so her short story collection is great. Um, I really loved the what is it? I think it's called Speech Stories. I can't remember which one, but it's it, it's a brilliant it's a brilliant short story. And then also Blood Child. Um, so the, I would start with her short story collection and then strap up read kindred like i i would say try to read it i just did it like it was a a a hard cold bath and did it in in one sitting um because it was like yeah and it was just like oh god like um and then the the parables the parable books. Are just, I started with the parables,
4: and I'm going to say start with the short stories. it yeah. was <laughs> so a parable. You're like, oh, this is just my life. Is this where she's she's prophesizing? She's yeah. like, she's seeing the future, and it's not good. Yeah, it's no, really it was bad.
7: like it's like Octavia warned us. No, she I, don't, I don't know how many people were listening, but Octavia warned
4: us. Yeah, no one was listening. Is is horrifying, but um, uh, also a good guidebook for when we get there. Yeah, <laughs> um, I do. So that's bringing me a lot of joy.
7: Um, and then as far as, um, I got really, I've gotten really into gardening and foraging. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, I love it. And I think it's like the, it's and it's fun to sort of, because there is a fandom surrounds it too. Cause like I've, you've got Black Forager, like she's the most famous one on TikTok and all that jazz, but there's this whole community. And I think like the power of discovering, and also it's a reclamation because it's specifically for black and brown folks so much of the food that we ate was forged, <laughs> um, And it, it doesn't mean it was like poor people food or like it was the stuff that we had access to yeah. and the things that we made and sort of the reclaiming of that and being able to go out in my backyard and be like, yes, all of those weeds, those are delicious and we'll make a salad um, and is our far more nutrient dense than half the stuff that you'll find at the grocery store. Um, so that's been fun. I've met a lot of really cool people. And it's also food is an amazing way to understand ourselves and understand other cultures. Um, And like, if you don't know how to talk to somebody, be interested in their food's culture, Mm. like their, like, their, their culture and their food. And it's like a, it's a beautiful segue into learning more about how they view the world, um, and also the food is usually pretty, it's really good. <laughs> so yeah, that's, those are kind of, those are the, it's like science fiction food and then rediscovering like kinship with nature. I think sort of the, the expansion, and I think it sort of all falls under the sci-fi umbrella too because so much of science fiction is what it means to be human. And like the expansion of that question is like, what is our relationship to the more than human world? and expanding that and sort of deepening or, re, or reclaiming a lot of that that may have been lost in all of the noise of industrialization and those sorts of things, so yeah. Nice. Okay. Good.
3: <laughs> Thank you for sharing those parts of yourself. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's
7: right.
3: <laughs> Tell me something good.
8: This is good.
3: <laughs> this
8: is good. <laughs> I feel so blessed to uh, be in the presence of this greatness here. And then we are great people. Mm. Um, I too, sober since uh, 2012. Yes. Um, it's gonna sound weird. DUI has saved my life. Mm. Amen. Um, <laughs> got one in 2010, got one early 2011. Was forced to go to, uh, in the beginning, a 12 uh, month and then an 18 month. Uh, it was so good, I took six years to finish it because I didn't want to just be out there on my own. Um, but in the course of that, met a wonderful, wonderful, wonderful woman. Dorothy Perkins um, wouldn't let me get away with no shucking and jiving, <laughs> no tap dancing, no, uh, either we're going to talk about the real shit or you're going to
9: die.
8: <laughs> um, saved my life. Uh, it opened me up to love, being loved, feeling like I was worthy of being loved like I deserved. Love and I deserve to love others unconditionally. Um, Love and accept and celebrate others unconditionally. Um, Right now, I I mean, after uh, Stargate came back to LA from living in Vancouver and found out it didn't matter. Uh, didn't matter, I'd been on TV for 10 years. Um, so it was back to, you know, uh, literally auditioning for Three Lines. And, and uh, so this is kind of exacerbated drinking. Like this is not freeing me, it's enslaving me. Mm-hmm. As we enslaving me. Mm-hmm. Um, so upon my sobriety, uh, I just sat back and let the world bring me what it was gonna bring me. Um, like my first audition being sober was God of War. Look at that. Wow. Um, oh, wow. <laughs> Hell yeah! Um, that which I literally in the old days I wouldn't have done it um, because the script they sent me was so incredible that I said this is gonna go straight to offer. This is there's no way that uh, I'll even be in running for this. And then my agent said, it, it's, a, it's a video game. And then I cussed my agent out, and then I thought about it. I said, look, you said you'd be open. Mm-hmm. If you could get rid of this affliction, mm-hmm. you would trust the universe to bring you what you needed. Mm-hmm. God of War. Um, so since then, I've just been kind of living and joy and being open to us. And and not, not just us, it's all of humanity and what joy there is in it and, and finding the goodness in everyone, even though some people you gotta dig a lot further.
9: Uh,
8: <laughs> <laughs> um, and it, it's just been, uh, living blessings. Um, script I wrote back in 2009, all of a sudden I developed it with two different studios. Never saw the light of day. Um, company wants to do it um, and I've also realized that I, I can't just be an employee eh. you, you have to own IPs you, have, eh. you can't sit around waiting for someone to hire you so to once again uh, this cat <laughs> Madison Jones been trying to get a hold of me for over a year and uh, finally I, my agent said no you have to like talk to this young man you have to He written a thing called Fang, uh, which is the story of, uh, of the vampire mythos, but from a different perspective. It started in Africa, and it has been around since the dawn of man. Uh, and it was this, this, this young brother has written two full seasons, the music, the every, every, I, I mean, i never come to find out. He's partnered with one of my personal heroes Suzanne De pass um and you know if you're a 60 year old man like Susie Suzanne De pass and what oh, was it Susie <laughs> <laughs>
9: uh
8: and Barry gory I mean there you know yeah. um, and through that uh, he's written a series of novels and I'm not a voracious reader these three novels were over eight hundred pages apiece. I read them all in one sitting. Wow! That's how, and it's um, basically the story of witchcraft uh, from the dawn of man. It's like if The Godfather met Sopranos met Da Vinci Code, like, and it's all centered uh, around women and their power in this world, and, uh, how since the dawn of man, this has all been controlled by these covens. And, uh, to... Literally, companies are saying, okay, how do we get this done? I don't know, that's your job. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But we have a who's who of, of... of of Hollywood attached. Um, And truly, it's just such a blessing to not have that yoke around my neck anymore Mm -hmm. and be free and sober and conscious to really be open to the blessings of, uh, of the universe of which I consider today one of them. This is like, to meet this collective
9: mm-hmm.
8: is far greater than anything I could hope for. And I, I wanna thank you all, thank you all for putting it <laughs> together. Uh, it's just the blessings continue. Mm.
3: Thank you so much for sharing. Yeah. And congratulations on your sobriety.
8: Yeah, that's a lot of years
3: yeah.
5: between You yeah. know that's right. You that's know no, that's like, right. Come on. Oh, uh, I
3: got a whole grown child between 21, you. Like
5: 21, 22 years right here, man. So anybody
4: out there, it works. It, work. it, it
2: works. it works. It
4: works. Christina,
2: can I put
4: the question
3: back on you? Let's yeah. bring in Adrian. Yeah. Tell us. Wow.
9: <laughs> <laughs> hey, wait a minute.
2: Uh,
3: <laughs> So most people know me like through hosting and through cosplay and those things, but I like I'm an actress. And like that is what I wanted to be since I was a little girl. And I just got to do a project and I keep talking about it, but it's called Headless to Sleepy Hollow Story. And I play Judy Godinier, the Mia's assistant. She's fantastic. She's really great. She's got a great little dress. And this voice is also one of the things that brings me joy because I got to talk like this for an entire season of the show. It was really great. 10 episodes. They're all on YouTube. Go watch them. So I was so excited about this because they came to me with this part and they gave me a chance. And it's the idea that me at 36 years old getting and living a dream that I wouldn't have thought possible and I think about like everything that I've gone through to get to this point mm. and my thing like I got to do this show I got to be a part of this but I also got to go home that night and after we finished filming and did all these things and oh it's really I'm sorry um, I was told for the longest time that I could not have kids oh. and I, like when I found out I was pregnant with my son, I literally bought my house. Everything that has happened since I've moved here and decided to live open and honest and just to exist as my full self, like the doors that have opened in that, was to move from Columbus, Georgia in 2014. I met my moved in November, met my husband in December, went on from that and just remember like losing, cause I wasn't gonna leave. I was gonna stay in this town where I was not happy. Mm-hmm. And I went and I sat down one night and I said a prayer. I said, God, if you open a window, I will jump out and open a door I will run through it, but I can't be here anymore cause I'm sad. And the next day, my job went out of business.
4: Wow. <laughs>
3: cool. um, and I looked at that and I went and I sat down and I put a date on the calendar and I said, this is the day that I am gonna move to California. I called my mom who's already out here and I was like, all right, I'm gonna do it. What are you gonna do when you get here? I don't know And I kept, I joked, I had like, had just gone to Dragon Con. It was my first convention. (laughs) And I packed up my my books, my cars, and my comic books. Mm -hmm. And I put everything in my car and I Drove 36 hours with my friend Brooke in the passenger seat listening to Taylor Swift and blasting the One Direction album that just came out It also (laughs) happened to be their last one and we got on the road and we drove 36 hours overnight from Georgia to here She flew back had never been on a plane before in her entire life and she flew back from California to Georgia and It was all this stuff and it just started happening. I turned 29 and I truly believe in golden birthdays. So I turned 29 on the 29th of January and I know that was a monumental day because it was my birthday and my husband, oh, now husband, he said, hey, I'm gonna meet you. I'm gonna come pick you up. I go and he hands me his wallet. I was like, don't hand me your wallet. I don't want nothing in there. I don't like people handing me their wallets. I don't handle other people money. He, And I opened it and there's two tickets to Wicked because I always told him the last song I sang, ever sang to my grandmother was a song from Wicked and I'd never seen it. I used to listen to it at night and hear like, just imagine what it would look like on stage because I couldn't afford to go to it. And I would just listen in my head to it. And so he had tickets to it. And on the side of the corner, this all ties back to fandom, I promise, sitting on the corner that very night on my golden birthday as I'm out celebrating Sir Patrick Stewart. And Stop I had it. my three heads of the dragon for Star Trek were Leonard Nimoy, Sir Patrick Stewart, and obviously Nichelle Nichols. And <laughs> I met two of those, but to have him there that night, my 29th, I'm like, sign, sign sign so I followed all the signs that sign led to okay maybe I'm I'm where I'm supposed to be and then I kept going and I decided one day I didn't want to do what I was doing and I left my job and I said I'm never gonna take another job unless it's in entertainment and I kept doing that and I have not taken a job that is not entertainment since 2017 Mm. and in all of that I also like in 2019 we bought our first house and I looked at all the rooms and I was like, oh, okay. I was like, well, this will be an office. And two weeks after we bought our house, I found out I was pregnant with my son. And now we are two children later. And I'm teaching my kids about fandom. I'm sharing Star Wars Galaxy with my kids. I'm watching those things. I'm creating. I'm doing all the things that I love with little people that I love. And I know that if all of this went away tomorrow, I still have my family at home. I still have those people that I love with every fiber of my being. And that is as much a part of my dream and my joy as the fandom portion of it. And I would not be here, but by the grace of God, because as you all know, like there's been times I wanted to quit fandom in the last two years. Mm. And I didn't and I'm sitting here right now surrounded by people that I respect and admire being presented with opportunities to create and talk and share joy and hopefully in all of the joy and struggle and different things that we have shared with you today, I hope you saw people. Mm. I hope you listened. I hope you saw people. I hope you saw our hearts and saw that sometimes you really need to understand that The correction is a blessing. Mm. The correction is a grace. Sometimes we have to step outside of ourselves and understand that if we are going to have these tough conversations, they're called tough for a reason. Mm. They're not tough because you quit. If any of us had quit any of the things that we were doing prior, we wouldn't be sitting here having this conversation. We wouldn't Mm. be in this world creating. We wouldn't be able to take up space. I want you to go out and take up space, but there are some of you that also need to invite people into your space to be heard. Not to respond, but to listen. Because your friends are trying to keep you as their friends when they are talking to you about these things. These are not attacks. It is not making everything about race when you can't take your skin off. You don't get to go outside. We can wear all the costumes in the world. We can play all the different characters in the world, but we still have to go out into this world and exist as people of color. Mm. And we just want it to not be so hard. And we don't want it to be hard for our kids. Every kid deserves representation. They deserve to see themselves. But more important than that, they deserve to safely do so. Mm. They deserve to not have a dream that comes with death threats. They deserve to have a dream that is able to be seen to fruition without hate for no reason. Everybody that is out there that you see, access does not mean be an asshole. Mm. There's There's so much that we've all collectively gone through, experienced, and this is an opportunity to use our voices to say, like, it's enough. It is enough. We are people. A platform does not give you the privilege to hurt, Mm. to say whatever you want to, to bully a person to the point that they want to take their life. This joy is resistance. Mm. This joy is honest, this joy is truth. Listen to the things that we've said. Put aside ego, put aside all of those things that make you want to hear and attack and hear hear the hope in the conversation. If that conversation can be successful, there is no telling how united our fandoms can be, and not only that, our world. Thank you all so much for joining us. Thank you to all of you for being here and doing this with us today. Um, Oh, well, I'm sure our Instagram handles and the (laughs) like are on the bottom of the screen under those lower (laughs) thirds. However, give these good people a visit, a follow, and, Drop by and say a kind word sometimes. I'm Kristina Ariel. Have a great day. Yeah, <laughs> oh my God.
2: Yet you ask me who I am. And if I am a man, you ask me who I am. Who I am? Who I am? the storm turn away. Who I am? I withdraw? Satisfy and explain I Who I am When they ask me Who I am